Welcome to Rebel Rebel. This is Lauren Drabble. And guess what happens today? I learn a lot about myself by learning about my cousin Terry. It's astounding sometimes. I, I kind of feel like we've been separated at birth, even though we've been separated since we've been about 12. I think that this will be cathartic and healing for a lot of listeners out there. And it it does go long, so I'm going to keep this intro short. There's not going to be an outro at the end. I just want you to listen to Terry and check out all her links and learn as much as you can through my awesome, awesome cousin. Welcome to Revel Revel, my cousin, Terry Craft. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Lauren. Well, you are welcome. And you are the first family member, so that's exciting. Great. Yes. How are you today? I am doing very well. The weather is gorgeous. Had a nice weekend outside. Still getting a little claustrophobic by not leaving the house for the last couple of months, but, but we're making it all work. Well, good. So it's really nice to uh, not have to do the whole how we know each other typical beginning that I do with everybody else. But let's just give a little bit of background. You are my cousin, and I believe you're slightly older than me. Were you born in 1968 or 69? I am 68. You are. Okay. So you're slightly older than me. So you knew me before I knew you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And when's the last time we saw each other? A wedding, I think, right? Well, that's better than a funeral. Yeah. Monica's? If it's Monica's, her son is in college now. So that's a long freaking time ago. Then it's Veronica. Okay, good. So a wedding. Yeah. That's lovely. (laughs) Yes. So we went over the theme about the fate, coincidences, whatever you personally choose to call these things in your life. Which of those words sort of works best for you? I like the meaningful coincidences. I I like that term. Um, I thought about it a lot, just separating the words out and putting them together um, and and what they mean to me in my life. It helps me with the reflection that I did. Yeah. So let's call it that. Okay. So once you started picking into those terms, what meaningful coincidences came to mind in your life? I have a couple. So I've got one that's personal and a couple of that are professional. The personal one happened back in 2008. I uh, was di- divorced uh, for a few years and on my own for the first time really ever in my life and went to the beach with a friend of mine. She said, hey, uh, you know, I have a beach house down in the Delaware Shore. Why don't you spend the weekend with me? And I said, great. I had just reconnected with her after um, her being a really good friend of mine in high school. We lost touch for years and then reconnected back at a high school reunion just a few years before that. So I went down with her and she had given me a list of all the people in the beach house, specifically the guys that were, you know, eligible and what their uh, situation was. (laughs) So not that I was going down there for that, but it's always nice to be able to know if your options are open and what's available. So I went down and I happened to meet Doug, who is my current husband, but just briefly didn't hang out with him at all. Didn't really talk to him a lot. Um, I think I served him a salad because we were making salads for whoever was sitting around the table at the time. And that was about the, uh, the extent of that. 
And that was Memorial Day weekend. I went down a couple other times that summer. Labor Day weekend comes around. And again, he was down, but I didn't really see him at all. My friend invited me down a weekend where there were a lot of people down there. So I ended up actually sleeping on the couch the last day of, I guess it was that Sunday night into Monday of that weekend. And he was in the main living room. So he was one of the first people who came out of his room and sat down in a chair next to me. And we just started having a conversation just about something very simple. And I didn't think anything of it. He, uh, when he actually started talking to me, I thought he was a really nice guy. I didn't know anything about him because he actually wasn't on the list of the prospective people that my friend sent to me. So I thought, well, okay, he always, he's got something going on, which is fine. When my friend then came down, she said, oh, you've met Doug. And I said, yeah. She said, well, you should know Doug because uh, Doug grew up in Lancaster where I grew up. He ran around with the exact same people that I used to run around with and knew from my first husband. He knew my first husband very well. As a matter of fact, they used to play basketball together. She just talked about the fact that, oh, you know, you guys have all these and the places that they would go out the same time we go out. I think, how is it that I never met him before? I knew all people in his circle. He knew all the people in my circle, but we never connected. So I didn't think anything of it. I said, okay, well, that's great. You know, it was nice meeting you. The stories are different. My story is he ran up the stairs to hug me to say goodbye. His story is I ran down the stairs to hug him to say goodbye. (laughs) So it depends on who you ask what exactly happened. I leave. I actually drove then to the Baltimore airport because I had to get on a flight for a conference and didn't think anything of it. So a couple days later, I get a text from my friend saying, so what did you and Doug talk about when you guys were down in the living room? And I said, it was just small stuff. It wasn't anything in particular. She said, well, he just texted me asking for your phone number. And here he was trying to figure out my email address through the evite for that weekend without contacting my friend because he knew as soon as he contacted my friend, she was going to ask me. Well, (laughs) you can't tell what my name is by my email address. So, so he ended up having to talk to her and she, and I said, well, you know, it's fine. So he texted me, Hey, this is Doug Kraft from Dewey was wondering, uh, I'll be back in town was wondering if you would like to share a drink Saturday evening. And he had just, he's a college basketball coach. So that summer that we met, he actually went from a division a different division position to a division one school. So this is actually his big break. He's finally going to be coaching in a division one school. It's three hours away from where I live. And he just got the job and he started that summer. So obviously career bachelor, never been married, never had kids, lives by himself, dedicated his life to his career. Not a good fit for the mom, divorced, two kids, can't move, has, you know, because I have a custody agreement, et cetera. So it's like, well, I'm not He's a nice guy, but this doesn't seem like this is really going to work. But I wasn't scheduled to come home on Saturday. I was scheduled to come home on Sunday. So I, uh, he was coming back to Lancaster for his sister's birthday. And I said, thanks so much for the invite, but I can't make it. Maybe another time. No worries. Well, toward the end of the week, by the time on Friday I was supposed to fly out, the weather was supposed to be really bad. So all the flights were messed up. And I was trying to get an earlier flight out so I would miss the storm. And I did. So that meant that I was going to be home Saturday night. So I just texted him and said, hey, you know, I'll, if you still are interested, we could do that. He said, sure. So we met up for, for drinks and 
I didn't realize at the time that he had a safety call planned. I did not. So I found out eight <laughs> years later that he had a safety call planned on that. And we just hit it off. I mean, we, we just talked about a lot of different things, a lot of people that we knew. And I kept thinking the whole time, how is it, you know, all the, all the different places he would hang out and, and the people he was with, I just couldn't believe that we never connected, that we never met before. So at the, you know, at the end of the night, you know, he, the lights go on and he's like, why are they turning the lights on? I said, well, because we closed the lights down. <laughs> and then after that, you know, he talked to me the next day and he said he went back and drove back to work on that Monday. His fellow coach asked him how the date went and he said, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> so that's kind of what started it. I didn't think it was going to work because I, I can't move to him. So if we're going to be together, he was going to have to quit his dream job and move back to Lancaster. And, you know, so I took it slow for a little bit, but we ended up having a long distance relationship. And then he finally decided that, yeah, this is what he wanted. So that's what he did. He quit his coaching career, actually, to move back to Lancaster and for us to get married. So the interesting thing is that there are times because he was a high school coach and my ex-husband is also a high school coach and my brother played basketball. So several years later, after we got married, there is a, a, a friend who sent us a videotape of a specific game that it was Conestoga Valley versus Lancaster Catholic. So my ex-husband coached Lancaster Catholic and my brother was on the team at that time. And then they were playing against Conestoga Valley where Doug was one of the coaches and his brother, Zach, played on the team. So Zach played against my brother, Michael. And I'm watching this game and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's there coaching. I bet you I was at this game. And I look over and, and there I am, mm -hmm. you know? So it just, I was in the stands when all this was happening. So it's just this, not only that whole adventure for us to be together, but the fact that the timing of our meeting was at a time when I was a more independent person. I felt good about myself. My career was really taking off. My children were a little older. They weren't babies anymore, um, but they were still young. But Doug not ever having any children of his own, never being married before, you know, it was just the right time for him as well. I think if I would have had babies or if we even said, you know, if we would have met 10 years before, not sure that we would have connected like we did just because we feel as though the the experiences and just our emotional maturity the way that we have really come into being for our own and being comfortable with ourselves that we were at a point for each of us in our life where this worked and that we connected and um, we'll be married 10 years this October. Wow. So I love stories like that and I love when I hear them I'm picturing you're going around doing your thing, living your life, possibly running into him, but it's like having blinders on. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the blinders come off. Right. And it happens time and time again. So many people need to be repeatedly shown, this is what I'm putting in your path. Yeah. Yeah. Was it like a spur of the moment invitation from your friend? to the beach house? Yeah, it was. We just were talking and she said, hey, if you don't have anything else to do, and I did not have custody of my children that weekend, so I was open and I was able to go. And uh, yeah, it just it just so happened that all the stars aligned with my schedule and that I wasn't traveling for work and that I didn't have the kids. And, and then the invitation was open and the house had room. Yeah, and you said yes. And I said yes. That's a big thing. A lot of people don't realize they have to actually get their butt out the door, say yes to things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So is he still coaching? 
So he coaches AAU basketball. Um, what he did when he came back, there weren't any college positions available here in Lancaster when he came back. So he spent some time just kind of searching on his own just to see if it's time to make a career shift. And he now is working as a, a buyer for Ollie's Bargain Outlets. It's a uh, closeout buyer that has stores all up and down, you know, pretty much the Northeast. His connection, though, to coaching has never stopped. And it's such an outlet for him, number one. But number two, the impact that he makes on these on these kids' lives is just remarkable. And I think that's another reason why it connected so well is because I had two young boys at the time. And I think Justin was about five and Jordan was 10. And Doug spent his whole life coaching kids, specifically boys. And so he had an instant connection with my kids. Uh, my kids love basketball. So we would go up to games. My kids would get to go in the locker room with the team in these division one schools. So they just love that whole thing. And then by the time then that Doug moved back here, my kids were starting to play basketball as well. They had a love for basketball. He had that love for basketball. So that all was something that they connected with. And I played. So I mean, it's kind of a, it's in all of our blood to do that. He right now for his AU team, he coaches mainly 17U, which is juniors into their senior year. And he's able to help them just develop as men. I mean, that's, you know, he doesn't promise anything as far as scholarships or any of that kind of thing because he really can't. But what he can do is help to, to really identify them, uh, their their potential, their opportunity, and really be able to nurture them to to have them grow into great men. So the boys are how old now? So Jordan is, is 23. He is living on his own, actually working for his father in uh, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and loving his job. And he's doing great. Justin is 19. He is going to be a sophomore at Penn College of Technology studying industrial design. And this summer, he is an employee of my company, The Pivotal Group. So it's been a lot of fun working with my son. <laughs> we've just been, we've been having a blast. And uh, it's a lot of giving him visibility to business, to my business, to what I do, my background, some key important issues that are happening in our community specifically, and what I'm doing to help. And my nonprofit work as well as my for-profit work. And so that's been, that's been a lot of fun. And then uh, we have David Kamwanga, who also lives with us. And we are legal guardians of. David came to us a year and a half ago, and he is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He is just graduated from Lancaster Catholic and is, we're um, looking to be able to play basketball in college. So we are still spending the summer, especially with everything that's going on now. A lot of colleges don't know what their basketball program is going to look like, if college is going to be open, are they going to be allowed to practice? So a lot of that uh, recruiting season has been unprecedented. And so we're just taking in options and looking to see, you know, what the best resource for David will be. Well, I am glad that you brought David up because I have questions, you know, like all of a sudden he disappeared in your lives and our family sucks talking to each other about what's going on. I'm like, who's, who's he? Where did he come from? So how did he come into your life? So David and his cousin Denzel came over from the Democratic Republic of Congo as prospective basketball players. And they actually came over to the U.S. to live with another uncle and his family. And they came over and they started going to Lancaster Catholic, which is where Justin was going at the time. The two boys were living with their uncle for several years. And then an opportunity came up where his uncle was moving to Florida and this 
that the boys wanted to stay here. So the opportunity was there for us to, uh, to take him in. We knew David and Denzel, they're both uh, graduated a year behind Justin. So Justin knew who both of them were. And then when Doug was coaching AU, David actually came over on his team. Doug knew D David better than Denzel just because of that playing time that they had together. Um, we had an opportunity where a phone call came in while we were on vacation uh, with my family. And uh, it said, look, David requested that maybe he could come live with us. Um, that phone call was on a Thursday. We got home on Saturday, had a site visit on Sunday where David and Denzel both came over with Denzel's father. Den uh, Denzel's father had flown from the DRC uh, over to the U.S. just to make sure that the both boys were taken care of in their new homes. And they met my whole family. Um, you know, at the time, Justin was still in high school. Jordan was going to the University of Pittsburgh. So he wasn't here that often, but he still had a home base here. And it was interesting. So at that point, he said, Mom, what's, what's my role in all of this? How can I help? And I just thought that that was so mature of him to be asking that because he knew he yeah. wasn't going to be around. He knew that it was his bedroom that David was going to go in because we only have three bedrooms in the house. We don't have a very big house, but it was one of those opportunities. And, and quite frankly, it's not the first time that the opportunity got close. Every year, there's always seems to be someone that uh, a player on, on Doug's team that goes through hardship and just needs someone to let them know that, that they care about them. And um, they've come and had dinner with us. They've had holidays with us. Uh, they've even stayed over on occasion just to be able to, to escape maybe where they were or to just be somewhere where they felt loved. It's never come to the point where we took them in permanently. We've had discussions about certain <laughs> players that if it comes to this, are we okay with that? This is the first time though that it came to that. And I remember the conversation on that Thursday while my whole family was there. And we just talked to them about, look, this is an opportunity that we have. And they just looked at us and said point blank, absolutely. You have to do this and we are all family and we're going to help you as best we can. Whatever you need, we're there for you. And it was just, that's how my family is. You know, I mean, this is how my family is. They're just, they're just so loving and, and, and just saw this as such a wonderful opportunity to embrace another member of our family. And so, uh, so that's what happened. We said, okay, neither David or Dadell spoke English when they first came here to the United States. So their first language is French. Oh. And then they also have their Congolese dialect. So English is actually technically their third language, but they really picked up on things very quickly. Uh, they really immersed themselves in, uh, in the school, in basketball, in working. I mean, David had a job working, um, Already when he came to us, he was very much about, you know, trying to save up enough money as possible. He wanted to buy himself a car when he was able to finally turn 16 and get his driver's license. And so, so that's how it's been. It's, it was wonderful. And Justin, I'll never forget, came to me too and said, mom, you know, if, if David comes, I can take him to school every day and drive him around because Justin was 16 and had his own car. So he was talking about the fact that he could do whatever needed to be as far as running errands and just being there to support. And I know that Justin, when he was little, always wanted to be a big brother. And um, this was Aww. his opportunity to finally do that. So 
Where did Denzel go? Denzel went to a family, Tom and Kathy Richardson, who were also uh, at Lancaster Catholic. And we didn't know them before this happened. But once it did happen, we got to know them. And they are such amazing, wonderful people. And what a great family for Denzel to go. It was one of these where it was very difficult asking the two of them if they were okay separating. We just didn't have the room for both. And neither did the Richardson. So it was one of these where, are you okay? splitting up and they said yes because they're constantly they're going to school together they're they're in all the extracurricular things that they do they're all together so it was okay that they were separated that way because in every other aspect of their life socially they were together and they still to this day they also have a great network of Congolese friends here in Lancaster because Lancaster is we have so many wonderful immigrants and refugees here that um, and there are, our town is so loving to be able to take them in and welcome them and help them uh, with education and thriving businesses, et cetera. So it's, it's been really exciting that they have this strong network of people of all ages from the Congo that they can connect with to speak their language, to, to share customs and stories and things, to worship together. And so they have that great network there that they, they really thrive in. And it's been a lot of fun to see. Even when they have their friends come over here, it's just been fun to be able to meet their friends. And That's great. I didn't know that Lancaster had a large immigrant community, especially not, say, from the Congo. Yes. And, you know, it's amazing because if people, if people know anything about Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they know about one thing, the Amish, you know, and so it, this is good. This is eye opening. And so what did, what did you get to learn about his culture? Well, the big thing that we just learned is that he didn't experience racism in Africa. Oh, yeah. So uh, now mind you, there is war. And the reason why he and his his cousin are here, they are here on asylum visas. So they are here because the it is dangerous for them to be back in their home country. You know, it's it's hard. He'll try to connect with his parents and siblings over the internet and the government will just shut the internet down on occasion, especially over election time, to prevent people from communicating, from educating themselves voting you know so it's it's been really interesting to to uh to see that dynamic of what happens but despite all that he just said he's never experienced racism before uh until he came to the united states and uh so that's one of the biggest differences um we have a lot of things in common we'll often ask about the types of food that we eat similar things to what he grew up with maybe the way that he ate it was different like corn you know was always on the cob you know very very similar to what we do and the fact that you know they the children are raised and they want to go to school but then they have this whole strife of a militant type of government where you've got all this carnage and i remember uh we watched uh, there was an hbo special i believe on what's going on in the drc right now and he came out and he could tell just by, <clears throat> excuse me, the landscape that it was his country. He said, oh, that's my country. And I said, yes. I said, David, I've been watching this for an hour now and I don't know who the good guys are. I see your military and I see these rebels that are hanging out in, in the jungles kind of waiting to a- attack from that side. You know, who, who is fighting for the people? And he said, he said, no, he said, they're all corrupt. So, so just watching that documentary and just asking him some questions and seeing what was happening, you know, he, he and Denzel were not from the very poor class. They were considered 
middle class with their families, but still they had, they had a lot of strife that they had to deal with. And, and the fact that they're here out of harm's way, it also says something too. Right. So, you know, when I was prepping you for this, I was saying that there's always like a, something that comes up in the conversation about maybe a book that you could recommend. And I'll definitely want you to tell me the name of that documentary so we can put a link in the info. But also, you know, when you said that he had never experienced racism until he got here, I have a great book about that, actually, Americana. It's a novel, but it's, it's got a lot of actual things that happened to her when she got to the States from Nigeria and said the exact same thing, that I was never this, I was never pigeonholed into this box or these boxes until I got here. So did you have any other help, you know, from books or other people trying to help you to learn what it's like to take someone in and understand what they're going through? We, we did. We had the other family. We talked a lot to David himself. My, my husband is an incredible interviewer. (laughs) He really is. And uh, we have just had some really deep conversations with David, especially in the very beginning, asking him, what he went through, what kind of, what what are his favorite foods? What kind of things he like? And it was interesting because when he came to us, he said his two favorite foods were cheese curls and Skittles. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm going to buy you a bag of each of these, but we don't eat like that here. <laughs> um, you know, you're going to, especially as an athlete, you, you need to eat healthy. And so, so once he started, especially when he saw Justin and Jordan and how healthy they ate, it took about a day for him to say, okay, you know, but yeah, just, you know, I, I think our conversations with him specifically uh, were very helpful. We get no financial aid at all for helping him. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's something that we, we want to make sure he's got all the opportunity that, our, you know, my kids had, you know, he, we gave him a, a car to drive. So he's, he's able to do that. You know, we helped him with his driver's license, which was not something easy to get for him. It took about five trips to the DMV. Um, mm-hmm. with all the proper documentation and everything that we needed to have for him. But the conversations that we've had, just the just the articles and things that we've tried to read, you know, just looking at a map, just first of all, looking at a map and just being able to understand exactly where his country is, you know, who are, we would ask him uh, just about who are the, who are the enemies, who are the friends, who are the people that you look out for, who are the people that, you know, in your country that you fear and, and how it was ever changing. So, and that documentary, like I said, really helped, really helped a lot as far as that was concerned. But for us, it was just, we're going to do everything we can to be able to open up our hearts and our home to, to somebody who we first started calling our bonus son, because he calls me his bonus mom. And, and when it was, it came to be, what can, what should I call you? He was, he calls Doug coach and Doug said well you can't call me coach when you're living with me you know on the basketball you know court then that's fine but you can just call me Doug but for me I said look I'm going to tell you what you are the only one who's allowed to call me by my real name which is Teresa but you have to say it in French so I took French you would think that after all these years in high school I could speak it I know very little but he said okay so my name in French is Therese so that's what he calls me. So Therese, he calls you yes. Therese, which I'm sure sounds a lot better when he says it than <laughs> yes. when I say it. <laughs> yes, 
Yes, and it's been, um, Doug is fluent in Spanish, and uh, so, and he uh -huh. did take French, so he'll, uh, you know, once in a while, we'll throw out some things at him in, in French, and I know very little, I know je t'aime, uh, which is I love you, mm -hmm. so this is something, I remember the one time he came home from a, a particularly rough game where he didn't feel as though he played his best, and the team lost, and he was really down, and Doug, you know, the 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 two of them will debrief afterward. He wasn't playing for Doug. He was playing for his uh, high school team. But Doug always gives him helpful advice. And he's always seeking Doug's advice after the game. And they were just discussing it. And, and David just seemed really down. And then after they talked, Doug looked at me and said, you know, Terry, do you have anything to say? And I just looked at him and I just said, je t'aime, David. It was my French. It was appropriate. It was the right time to be able to surprise him with it. And uh you know, I know a couple, again, some very basic things, but it's so beautiful to listen to him talk. You know, when we say grace, he'll say grace in French. So it's it's just wonderful to hear that when he talks to his friends and he has them all over, they're all speaking French and then they'll move to their dialect. And it's it's just a lot of fun to be able to listen and, 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 and see them. Well, that's awesome. And he's been in your life since about four so, Three, four uh, years now? It'll be, it's a year and a half. So it'll be two years. Our uh, guardianship actually expires in August of this year. And when we had it, it was for two years. So and what happens in August? What happens when it expires? Um, well, at that point, then he's, you know, he's, he's on his own. He'll be, uh, he's, he's 19. Well, he'll be 20 at that point. We're, we're still here from him. We, you know, we're, we're, we told him that we will be his home base. You know, we're determined to try to uh, help him make his decision about college and where he wants to go. But he's got opportunities where he could be placed anywhere in the United States. So there's a good chance, especially if he's playing a higher division basketball that we would not see him very often after that. So it was to make sure that he was able to graduate from high school. He does have a hearing on July 15th about uh, his asylum status here in the United States. So just trying to get through that and then figuring out the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity for him to be able to go to college are all things that we're trying to help navigate with him. Uh, the ultimate decision for him to go to school and where he wants to go is up to him. But we're trying to help him make that decision as informed as possible. We want to make sure that where he goes, he's being taken care of by somebody who Doug knows and trusts. Um, but that's going to be up to him. His final decision is going to be up to him. We also want to make sure that it's as low cost as possible for him. So he's got a lot of options. It's exciting to stay back and watch it all happen. But he can legally stay here until at least he finishes college, right? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, oh. On July 15th, we'll establish if he is going to be a, uh, an applicant for his green card. If he is denied that, we have a year to appeal. So it's kind of a, his parents and his family are taking care of this whole situation. This has all been happening since they came over here, having to do with their visas. Uh, right now, he's got a working permit. He's got a driver's license. He's got everything that he can to be able to to, to be a, a contributing member of society, which he has been since he's been here, not only as a student, but also as an employee and somebody who gives back to the community. So we'll see what happens on July 15th at that point, And then we have time to be able to prepare and, and see what happens. Well, hopefully there will be a lot of people who hear this and then say to themselves, well, I care what happened with David. So we'll want an update in on July 16th. Okay. Sounds great.
Okay. So you mentioned earlier about your nonprofit work. Does your nonprofit have anything to do with refugees, asylum seekers, anything like that? I don't know anything about your nonprofit. So I am a founding member of the Lancaster County STEM Alliance Advisory Council. And uh, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. And when uh, in my former position, I was really spearheading an initiative to be able to help develop and implement creative STEM programming for local students as a way to be able to not only connect them and help them outside of school to be able to complement what they're learning in school and fun activities and, and different ways of learning, but also seeing this as a great resource to have them understand more about their own core competencies and their skills and connect it to career exploration and eventually workforce development. Because that's that's really the main crux of the STEM Alliance. We're really trying to look at how can we help to identify and nurture a very robust community economically so that we can continue to be able to fill these jobs and these critical roles for our businesses that don't have a pipeline of students and employees to be able to get there. We are noticing just trends back and forth of uh, used to be where you needed a four-year degree to be able to, to, to be successful in life. And we're finding very quickly now that it's not, not only is that not the case, but it's, it's not necessarily where the in-demand jobs are. And it's not needed for those. And what's putting some students in unbelievable debt uh, with no real prospects after they graduate from, from college. So that all attracted me. And, uh, and in doing so, I was asked to be a part of this, this advisory council. And uh, one of, we have several different initiatives. And the one that I am chair of is called Community-Based Learning. So it's really working with all different types of organizations in the community specifically they're helping the underserved to be able to connect them to different resources to help them also help understand what their potential is, how it connects with STEM, uh, and how we can help to excite and, and inspire different types of opportunities for them. And how did you get into that? It was through my last position as a museum director uh, and looking to really spearhead um, the strategy into more of a, a, a welcoming, uh, all-encompassing um, type of opportunity so that we can inspire the students that come in, as well as their families, as well as those students who have never been able to physically come into the museum. There's so many opportunities for us to be able to get that message out there. The excitement's there. How can we continue to build that excitement when they come home from school and, um, and nurture it that way? So that's where I, I got into it. I'm very passionate specifically about students helping to understand what their core competencies are before they graduate from high school so that they have a plan when they graduate. It doesn't necessarily mean that they know exactly what they want to do because I think that's just such awful pressure to put on students. How many of us adults know exactly what we want to do when we grow up? You know, the, the fact that we put that pressure on these students to say, you should know this by the time you graduate when you're 18 is absolutely ridiculous. And it's causing so much stress. And it's especially ridiculous nowadays when most of the technology that we're all using now didn't exist no. when they were in school. And so how do you say, I want to do this thing that doesn't exist that you've never heard of? It's, it's, it's too hard. It's too hard to envision the future and what will make you happy. And so that's, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard that we were supposed to ask kids now, what problems do you want to solve instead of what do you want to do? And I think that's a much better way to, to approach it. 
I absolutely do too. And that conversation is, is starting at such high level, which is great. It's saying, what problem do you want to solve? I want clean water for everyone. Okay. Well then let's start to drill down on what some of those options are because I remember going to a, a, a national STEM conference just two years ago and someone got up and said of the top 10 hottest jobs that are out there right now, six of them did not exist 20 years ago. Right. And if you look at the current jobs that we have in place right now in our society, it's estimated that 50% of those will not exist in 20 years. Wow. So if you look at artificial intelligence and augmented reality, automation, you know, just you're looking at driverless cars, you're looking at, you know, even, even you don't really have people at toll booths anymore because you have easy pass, you know, all these things now that are happening that are taking jobs away from people that are automating, but they're shifting. So now you need people to program the automation, you need people to maintain the automation, you need people to advance the automation. So it's it's just opening up a whole lot of different opportunities that no one can really predict what they are. You know, right now, data scientists is one of the hottest jobs out there. Well, cybercrime, cybersecurity, all those things didn't exist decades ago. So now all of a sudden, it's something that's desperately needed in our community. Just like we kept driving, even our generation, you had to get that four-year degree you know, there weren't the people, the parents that were driving their children to be car mechanics and, and all, you know, all these great blue collar jobs that are critical for this, the functioning of our society that are, that are really great paying jobs now and opportunity for advancement and to own your own business, et cetera. But that wasn't seen as the best option. The best option was seen as well. The jobs require these four-year degrees. And now we're looking around and study after study is showing that it's not necessarily about that. It's, it's about, you know, number one, is the student even going to thrive in that type of environment? Because a lot of students just don't. They, they want to be hands-on right away. And they don't want to mm-hmm. sit in the classroom and, and learn about philosophy and things like that. But, you know, there are better ways for them to be able to grow themselves and be wonderful members of society learn a great living, earn a great, great living wage, and also then continue beyond that great wage to really thrive. And that's what we're trying to do. So I just, I get very excited about that. The other, the, the competency piece is something that I also get very excited about too, because I didn't really realize until I was in my forties, what my core competencies were. And I'm not talking oh. about skills, you know, I, I can do this, I'm a good writer and those types of things. I'm talking about I'm a communicator, relationship builder, problem solver, advocate. I have a lot of- Oh my gosh, I think we're the exact same list. You know, and it took me a lot of reflection and thought and going back over all the different jobs that I've had in my life, all the times where I thought I'm in the zone, I'm doing great. I feel like this is effortless. Um, I love what I'm doing and identifying those specific areas and then trying to draw parallels to them. And I started to talk like that. And one of the other, you know, meaningful coincidences really was about me just doing that in particular and deciding that I was going to start my own business. And just having those conversations with people, just knowing that when I speak, I don't speak in my history. I speak about who I am now and what I can do to make an impact in the future. And by identifying those competencies, I restructured my resume. Even how I talk to people is all about that. And that's so different than how people talk. (laughs) It's so different than how, you know, resumes are structured. And it was interesting because I never ever in my life would have thought that I would be a museum director. And here, because I spoke that way, 
they came back and said, this is exactly the kind of person right now that we are looking for. And at that point in their uh, legacy and that point in my life, it was a great fit. And that was, you know, if it was 20 years before, it may not have been a great fit. If it's in 20 years in the future, it may not have been a great fit. Uh, but at that point, that was a meaningful coincidence <laughs> in my life. And, and it's because I was able to articulate my strengths and how it, would, how it would match up perfectly to what they were looking for. So how did you learn to identify those strengths and how did you learn to talk the talk that is different than everybody else's? I was at a for-profit company for 10 years and uh, was laid off. And uh, at that point, I thought this is a great opportunity to really be able to determine what it is that I want to do and to find out more about myself. And I just happened to be on LinkedIn and I was just getting my LinkedIn page up and running. And I just happened to make a connection with somebody who's an executive coach. And his name is Bob Wilmer. And uh, he is one of the most amazing people and influential people in my life that I've ever met. He recommended that we just have a phone conversation just for an hour, just so he can ask me some questions and see how I'm doing. So I agreed. And he was very gentle, but he would call me out on some things, my language, how I described myself, what I would say about my options, my, my future, what I wanted, what I didn't want, what I didn't know I wanted. And it was the first time somebody ever was asking me those types of questions, those thought-provoking questions specifically about me to find out if I could really dig down deep and figure out what it is that I wanted. After that conversation, I went to Doug and I said, you know, I know we don't have any income coming in right now for my hands, but I think this is something I really should invest in. And he wanted to meet Doug. And I think the conversation between he and Doug was, was also a meaningful coincidence too, because the two of them are very similar. When Doug is recruiting someone to play on his AU team, he almost talks them out of it. I'm not going to, I can't promise you your child's going to get a scholarship. I can't promise you he's going to graduate with a 4.0. I can't promise you this. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you, is that he's going to work his butt off and that he's going to grow not only as a player, but also as a person. But I'm going to be hard on them. This is what's going to happen, but I can't guarantee anything else. And people flock to him for that. And I think, wow, that's a whole different sales approach, trying to talk them out of it, uh, to get them to come to you. And that's pretty much what, what Bob did too. Doug asked him, okay, so when can you guarantee she'll have a job? And Bob said, I'm not going to guarantee anything. It's not up to me. It's up to her. Doug said, okay, I, I like that. You know, other people may say, well, no, we want it by three months, then you should be gainfully employed because we're going to send out a hundred resumes per week. And that's not at all what this is. As a matter of fact, Bob told me, I don't want you to look at any job offers right now. I don't want you to look on Monster. I don't want you to look for any jobs at this point. We have work to do. Here's what we're going to do. And it started with the Myers-Briggs uh, tool to be able to identify the personality. And then we spent a lot of time going through that. And then when we tried to start identifying competencies, it was really about me first documenting times in my life, personal and professional, where I felt like I was in my zone. And we learned to refine those stories to, here is the problem. Here's what I did. Here is my solution. So it's three different sentences. And that's pretty much how I started to design the way that I talked and also the way that I, that I created a resume for myself, which in the resume was just kind of an FYI. It wasn't something that I would ever send out because it was the conversation that you wanted at first. So we really started identifying then, okay, so after you identify all these places where you felt like you were in your zone, then what is it that's the common thread? And that's when we started identifying, okay, so communicator, you know, my, my degree is in communications with a concentration in public relations. That's something that I've always felt strongly 
we can fix so many things if we just learn to communicate and communicate well and to understand who your who the receiver is and to be able to communicate in language that they understand that they want to receive and uh, is in the best way that they can receive so that was one relationship builder i'm a convener i love to bring people together i see an opportunity every single time there's a there's a crisis or there's wow there's there's something out there that we could possibly even taste this is something that we can we can accomplish we know we can't do it by ourselves so who else is around who shares that same passion who shares that same drive that we can connect with to bring together so i'm constantly introducing people to others i'm my friends are always asking me to mentor their their children who are just graduating from college or high school and have no idea what they want to do. You know, so I want to work here in Lancaster County, but I don't know anybody. So I, I have a pretty good network that I worked on for a while. It's those types of things that I try to do to be able to, to help reach out. And then the problem solver is something that I do naturally that didn't realize I did it. When I was at the for-profit company for 10 years, I had well, every company that I've been to, I've never been in the same title for longer than two years. I've always either got promoted or went for something else, or they moved me in a different position. And one of the best bosses I ever had, his name is Dave Hanchett. He was the one who said, hey, Tara, this department over here is a mess. I need you to go in. I'm going to put you in charge of it, and I need you to figure it out and, uh, and get it working. And I said, but I don't know anything about what that department does. I'm not a technical trainer, for example. I don't know how to do that. And he looks at me and says, I don't need you to do that. I need you to manage the people. Let the subject matter experts who you surround yourself with, be in charge of the tactical things. I need you to oversee the strategy and figure out what it is and, and how we can manage these people the best. So I was constantly being pulled in these different directions. And I, I said, why does he keep doing this? And it was never, Terry, you're a great problem solver. It was more about Terry gets things done. And that's his way of saying that I was the problem solver. So I, I, when I would reflect in these times where I felt like I was in my zone, I kept coming back to that job in particular because that was one where well, I just knew, you know, I, 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 he knew I could figure things out. And so, and the advocate is something that's becoming more and more me and who I am, being passionate about these students, especially the underserved, what we can do to be able to help them, being specifically about girls and looking at my nieces growing up, uh, reflecting on how I was then, even my friends' daughters and uh, how much we just spend so much time worrying about what other people think and we don't invest enough time in ourselves and that goes from what their you know they could be what their friends think to what society thinks going back to you need to be knowing what you're supposed to be doing right now before you graduate from high school you have to have over a 4.0 when you graduate otherwise you're not going to be good enough to go to this college that you really like so this this pressure this pressure this pressure that keeps building to be able to conform and to meet other people's expectations i just i had that lack of self confidence when i was their age and it really rings home for me that i i want to be able to to help in a way that i inspire i create a vision for or or examples or something to show them that it's okay to believe in yourself and to know that who you are and what you want to do and that you've got to have that confidence to say I'm ultimately it's up to me and I ultimately I'm the one who has to be happy it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks it's up to me so we started talking about books Glennon Doyle has a new book called Untamed that's mm -hmm. out right now and uh yep. 
that book was recommended to me and I have to say it's a, that was a life changer. And it's been something that I, that is ringing true in what I'm saying now, which is really about, you know, it isn't life supposed to be more beautiful than this is what she says in the book. You know, we look back and all these things that we're just plowing through just to try to get done. And we have our head down and our list to do during the day. And, and then the expectations of what society thinks we should do and how we should be and what, how we should act and how we should dress and what we should take care of ourselves with, et cetera. And then we step back and say, but isn't life supposed to be more beautiful than this? And, you know, for me, that just really resonated home as well as her telling everyone else, you know, well, sounds like you made the right decision for you. And when somebody says, I no longer be, want to be in your, your tribe, that's great. Sounds like it made the right decision for you best of luck to you. And I'm not going to think anything else. I want to surround myself with people that want to be with me and uh, that make me better. And so, so that's been, that's been really supportive of, of my passion to be able to, uh, to really help women just believe in themselves and to know that they are good enough. So you don't feel that you were like this when you were, you know, under 18? You feel oh, like this was all adult growth? This, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there are things that happened when I was in middle school, high school that certainly changed and, and, and morphed the way into who I am today. But I don't feel as though I really was more aware of myself and my confidence and was able to grow until probably my 30s. And is that when you got laid off from that job? In your um, it was, it was uh, divorce, laid off all happening around all that time there was a series of events it was like a tornado happening <laughs> at once where you know you you have a something that happens in your life and it's okay well and I'll never forget my sister-in-law I had one thing happen in particular where she said okay I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a day to sulk and then we got to figure out a plan and uh and anytime you know between deciding that my marriage is over to deciding that you know even in, when i got laid off i mean i remember calling my husband and he, he i said well it happened and he said congratulations because i was not happy and i hadn't been happy for a long time but i felt i was stuck and i didn't dig down to look at the courage that i had to be able to say yes you know i needed that kick in the butt for me to be, really be able to to say i deserve more than this and that's, that confidence is what helped me um, leave my last position without a job. I decided that I was there three years. I did a reflection of about 40 key accomplishments that I was able to, to help that organization through my leadership. And I felt as though I was done. And I also realized through myself too, I'm not a maintainer. I want to go in, blow everything up, <laughs> and then figure out a way to make it future proof and then and then get out let somebody else take over then the actual implementation and the maintenance I, that's where my zone is and that's what I like to do and I wanted to do more of that and I there were a lot of people including friends who didn't understand what I was doing how could you just leave a job without having something else how could you do that it's it's you know I was called irresponsible you know words like intimidating these things have like <laughs> labeled me my whole life and it's it's sad uh, when, when sometimes when friends say that, but I knew in my heart, this was the right thing to do. And if I was going to take a leap, then this was the time to do it. And I had to be okay with not knowing what the next thing was. But I had built up a network that I was very confident in. I had built a reputation that I was very confident in. And I knew that this is now the time for me to be able to call the shots and do the things that I want to do. And it just so happens that as soon as word got out that I was leaving, I had one of somebody who runs a, a local foundation here 
who I knew from uh, our kids played on the same basketball team together. And he said, you know, I, I think I have something that you might like. Just come around and let me know. And at that point, I wasn't sure I was going to start my own business. I didn't know if I was going to go work for another company. I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, Doug and I had planned this. We had planned this so that monetarily, you know, we're going to be taking care of. But, you know, I'd also had built up to the point where I knew that this is what I wanted to do and, and to take that leap. But I didn't know what the leap was. So I said, you know, okay, so I'll come over. And uh, I went and sat down with him and he put this project in front of me that originally I didn't think I was going to connect with, which is helping students thrive through esports. Because I'm not passionate about video games. I don't play video games. And I thought at that point, my kids, you know, I mean, they they play video games all the time. And I think it's melting their brain, you know, (laughs) and go out and play that kind of thing. And until so he said, yeah, I felt the same way you did, but here's all this research. And he showed it to me and I just said, wow, I, it's connecting with kids on so many different levels. 91% of, of children between the ages of two and 18 play video games. 91% don't brush their teeth. Mm-hmm. So if 91% can actually do that, there's got to be a connection. There's a study that shows that girls that game are three times more likely to study STEM careers ah. than girls that don't. Uh, so there's a lot of those types of statistics that I think, wow, okay, I'm looking at this data and I'm saying maybe there really is an opportunity here. So we, I, I started just finding out more about it and we started working together and he's, he's the one that said, look, I I really want you to, to work with me on this. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm going to quick form a company and get my LLC and get all that pulled together and say, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be a consultant and that's what I'm going to do. And so that was actually right after I stopped. And so I didn't really have, I was planning on taking some time off actually to go see my sister in Florida. (laughs) You know, I mean, I had worked so much at that last organization and didn't take at least time off. I just wanted to be able to have some time off for myself. And that, that didn't happen, which is okay, because this opportunity came up. And so that, that was another meaningful coincidence where I knew this person for a while but I had no idea what he was working on and he didn't know what I was working on. And, and then all of a sudden he found out what was happening with me and said, Hey, you know, why don't you? So, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So he's been my client since, since it'll be two years now. He's been my biggest client and then I have a couple other clients too, but I'm loving it to be my own, come up with my own mission and vision statements, uh, you know, to be able to say, yes, I want to do this. No, I, I'm not interested in that. To turn things down, having people come to me saying, look, there's this job out there. I think you'd be really good at it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, that time in my life is done and, and it's great. And I, I wish the best to whoever does it. But for me, it's just not a right fit anymore. This is what I, I, I love knowing what I don't want to do just as much as what I do want to do. Right. Yeah. So gosh, you said so many things I want to touch on. Let's just start with what's your Myers-Briggs letters. ENTJ. Ah, okay. So, you know, saying, oh my God, we're the same. When I first did it, I was ENTJ. And then some point, I don't remember when it changed to INTJ. So mine did too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why did you tell me E then? Because I, I, I think when I took it again, I just, I was just like, I don't think that that's me. I just don't think that that's me. So my, my uh, coach and I talked about this and yeah, I still go back to the E. I do. I'm, I'm an E, <laughs> I'm an I. but you're, you're right. That's, that, that's actually what happened to me as well. So I think for me, what it is, is that if I'm passionate about the subject, I can be E, totally. E. But if I'm not engaged in the advocacy of that subject, 
then the default position is I. That makes sense. Yeah. So I was thinking about how much alike we are, and yet we've really not spent any quality time with each other since I we were like 10. Right. So I'm thinking, what was it possibly in our youth, and I mean the extreme, you know, the formative years, that possibly might have been the same to push us to, you know, to be a certain way, to bring out these characteristics in us? Because I can't think of anybody else in our family that sounds more like me than you, at least today. (laughs) Well, you and I both had to move during that time. Yeah. But you only moved once, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it was uh, very traumatic. Huh. I was, you know, I was 11. I, you know, we were right there where my mom's side of the family was always over. So we always had people over and my grandparents lived with us. That was the other thing too. So my mom's parents lived with, so uh, even though we had, you know, we had a a, a small house at that point, we thought it was a huge house. We had everything we needed. We had a pool in the backyard. My best friend lived huge, by the way. I know it was me too. Um, (laughs) So we, it was a three bedroom by level, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it was for eight people. But, but we, you know, it was great and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And my best friend lived two doors down. And then every night, all the kids would come out uh, and play jailbreak, you know, so you knew everybody and you had mischief night and trick-or-treating and it was just such a great community and we're constantly outside riding bikes and playing with friends and, and that part meant a lot. And then, then having all that family there and my grandparents. Uh, so when we moved, we actually moved to a place that was south of Willow Street, Pennsylvania, which was very remote at the time. And then we lived south of that. So we bought a house that was on this property that was just sold by an Amish family, an Amish farm that was right down the street. And it was one lane and there were only three houses built at that point, but it was in the middle of nowhere. So suddenly it's just the four of us, me being the oldest. It was no grandparents because the grandparents didn't move with us. We didn't have a pool in the backyard anymore. My best friend is not anywhere near me. Uh, There is no one, as a matter of fact, around us anywhere. It was April of fifth grade. So here I am as a new kid when school was going to be over in a month and I really didn't get a chance to know anybody or get to know anyone. Being made fun of as a new kid, somebody who had my Jersey accent, who dressed a little differently than those kids did to not have any friends. It was just really hard. And then my, not only that summer did we not have my grandparents, my mom went back to work. And she had always been at home with us in New Jersey. So now it's just me, Michael, Christine, and David alone in a house where we're not allowed to ride our bikes really anywhere because it's too dangerous to go out on the highway to go to Turkey Hill or something like that. Um, And we had no pool. We had really nothing to do. So my poor mother (laughs) received a lot of phone calls. Mom, he's trying, you know, he's hurting me. Mom, he's trying to, you know, they're making fun of me. It's like constantly, but this poor woman, I don't, you know, I, what she went through with that was just, uh, must've been awful, but it was just very, it was very traumatic. Why is this happening? It was just all kind of, it was, it was very traumatic to happen all at once. And then, you know, your hormones are going too and everything else because of that age that you're at, it was really hard. And I remember you going through some, you know, some trouble too, just, just trying to adapt and, and figure out who you are. And, you know, when all this stuff happens, it just, I, I, I think I, to me, I think that's a major connection that the two of us have. 
Yeah, I agree. But I can't remember why you moved. My dad had a job opportunity in Lancaster that moved us. It was, it was his opportunity. So uh, obviously it built some resilience in both of us, I I would say, but it's just, it's just so interesting how things have happened, you know? Um, So, all right. You talked about your, your company and uh, there were so many things I wanted to go back on. Uh, I can't remember. So let me just, let me purge the brain of this one item. Maybe I'll think of more things then once I get rid of this one. So, you know, you were talking about how the jobs that exist today didn't five, 10, whatever years ago, and who knows what's going to be around in another 10, 20 years. Have you ever heard of, and I always say his name a little funny, Yuval Noah Harari? No. And I know you said you don't have much time to read anymore. So he does a lot of great YouTube interviews or podcast interviews. And he's a historian. So he's written about the past, the current and the future. I'll have to look up the name for the link, but it's something about the 21st century. And he talks about all of these things that are coming. And I think you'd be fascinated by it. But I find him uh, remarkable and challenging and... I knew if I said that, I would remember what I want to talk about. Okay. So you mentioned that you would do these reflections. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly that means? Yeah. In the beginning, when I did it with Bob, it was it was pretty structured in that it was more about go back through your life and identify when you f- truly felt you were in your zone, when you truly felt like what you were doing was effortless. Like, it can't come this easy. Why is it this easy that I can do this? When you felt this sense of accomplishment and a feeling of, wow, I did that. I was responsible for that. Again, it could be personal or professional. And it was very challenging for me because my default at that point was, let's talk about the things that I don't do well and where I felt like crap. I am my worst critic. I'm constantly beating myself up all the time. The bar is can never be too high. And even though I know I have a lot of successes in my life, I know that there's a whole lot more that I can do and that, that I have not reached my potential yet. So I'm always pushing myself for this. So when I do that, I become very critical of myself. What could I have done better? So this exercise was very challenging. It was probably one of the most challenging things I've ever had to do. And I sat there, I remember, because I, I like to write, I still like paper. Uh, I sat there with a pen and, and pad and I just got lost in thought thinking, wow, I don't know if I've really done anything that I'm proud of because all I kept getting was this flood of things that I did quote unquote wrong. And I took a deep breath and I went back to the, the one thing in my life at that point that I was most proud of is that, and that's when I worked at the American Cancer Society. And this was this little event that I was there two months and I was 20 in my early 20s. And we were told that we had to do this event called the Relay for Life that nobody's ever heard of before that nobody's really ever done. This doctor ran a track for 24 hours in honor of his patients. So we're going to try to do something like that here. It was very disorganized because there was no manual on how to do it. And we were just told we were supposed to do it. And I, we did it. And I remember our goal was to raise $15,000. That was it. And we raised $17,000. So we, we went over our goal and everyone was happy. And I remember going into my boss that day and I, and I said to her, I would like to take this event over. And she said, you're nuts. 
why wouldn't you want to take over Daffodil Days? Because that raises $73,000. It was one of the largest ones in the state. I don't, I don't know what it was at that point, why I said, I didn't realize that I was even doing it, but I just said there, I see this connection. This is me again, that, that connector. I see this connection. And I believe, because I've never worked in a nonprofit before, but I just knew that if you're going to be successful here, you want something that's going to connect people. And this event connected people in ways that none of the other fundraisers do. And I just see potential. And I just had this feeling, I get chills still talking about it, because I, there's only one other time where I felt like that in my life, like this is the right thing. And I, oh my gosh, this has so much potential, what's this going to do? And I just knew that it was going to be something successful. And because it had all the elements, it had remembering those that we lost from cancer, celebrating survivors, celebrating the caregivers, talking about cancer prevention and detection, talking about research, spreading the word, uniting people to rally around a cause and to rally around people that they loved and everything. And there was sacrifice and celebration and fun and community and family and everything, everything that was about the mission of who we are. And I said, this is so much more than just a product sale. Daffodil means nothing. There's no connection to cancer. You know, it's, it's just a widget that you're selling. This is something special. She said, okay, fine. And the next year we raised 67,000. The next year after that was 125,000. The next year after that was 363,000. Next year after that was 500. We kept growing by $200,000 every year to the point where we quickly became the largest in the state, then one of the top five in the country. And that was, well, 90s, early 90s when I first started working there. And it's still, the one in Lancaster is still one of the top ones in the world. And that that's one where I go back to, I received state awards, I received national awards, you know, for the, the people that we worked together. I was a part of that team that was able to see that. And I just remember that conversation with my boss, you know, that day saying, this is the first time I actually fought for something and said, yeah, you know what, there, I don't know what it is, but there's something special. And that's what sparked then my flow of, okay, so that's going to be at the top. And then let's talk about elements all those different things, why that happened, what that was, what I really enjoyed about it, why did I enjoy it? So I, I started off by just writing down moments, not analyzing them, just writing down moments where I felt, okay, starting with that, that was the feeling that I want to capture. So when else have I felt like that? And then I did all that. And then from there, working with my coaches, okay, so let's start to look at similarities. What are some of the trends that you could see going through that? What are some of the things that you think that really helped you and that area that connects all of these different separate events into, into some basic antidotes. And, and that's how we started to boil things down and connect them and label them and, and then say, hey, you know, I mean, this is where, this is, this is why this worked because I activated those things inside of me. I was open and I, I allowed them to take over. And so that's, that was the process. It was very exciting. After I got going, it was very exciting, but it was horrifying in the very beginning. I was so scared because I thought, I, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I can think positively. And now uh, once I unlocked all that, now it comes much more natural. I'm really glad that you maybe not consciously knew what was going on, but that you listened to your gut because no one's ever heard of this daffodil thing. Right. And everyone's heard of Relay for right. Life. <laughs> and yeah, so you chose very well. Yeah. And uh, I and you make me realize I haven't done one of those in a long time. I probably haven't done one since maybe 2006. So it's like, oh, I got to go and do that again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think this has been really good and uplifting and 
seeing someone work hard to become who they're meant to be is, I think, inspiring. So well done, you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you know, it was years of building up my network and, and understanding and just developing myself and believing in myself. And it's just a lot of hard work. When I got to the point where I said, I'm going to take this leap, I felt like I had done a ton to be able to prepare myself for that. And I'm really proud. I'm really proud of where I am and, and what I'm doing right now. And it's just been, it's been exciting to just see all the potential of, of how I can help this community get better. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you, my dear. It was really nice to connect with you. You too. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun.